Today's episode is sponsored by Bandada, a quick one to two player game in which players travel the world photographing exotic birds. Players draft cards to manipulate dice, but then use those same cards at the end of the round to score points. And the cards you scored in round one will still be scoring points in rounds two, three, and four. Can you manage the complexity as your tableau of birds increases? Compete against a friend or play through 10 unique solo scenarios. Bandada is on Kickstarter until March 11th, so be sure to check it out right now. And if you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going big. We're talking about what does it look like to design big games, massive games, enormous, humongous, gigantic in scope games. And we're talking to Isaac Childers from Cephalofair Games. Isaac, welcome to the show. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Really excited to talk to you, especially about this topic. I don't know of anyone else on the planet that I'd rather talk to uh, about this particular topic when it comes to really big games. You've designed several. You've designed some massive in-scope games, 25-pound games, games that come with lots of boxes and, and envelopes and cards and miniatures and, and just a crazy amount of content in the box. So I'm just really pumped to pick your brain about how do you do this? How do you create one of these games and actually finish? How do you design one of these games and hype it up and get people excited to buy a 25 pound $100 game? What does that look like? How do you you know set up your timelines? All that good stuff. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Uh, right. So yeah, Isaac Childress. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I got into game design about game design about 10 years ago or so. Um, you know, I've just been uh, playing board games on and off before that, but that was really sort of when I started going to like a weekly group and just really started just absorbing uh, everything around me, uh, board game related. And I don't know, it just naturally led to sort of designing, starting to design my own games. Um, and so the first game I designed was was Forge War, and I just kind of put it up on Kickstarter to see what would happen, and it ended up doing really well. Um, and so from there, I decided to to keep going with with the game design thing, and published uh, Gloomhaven after that. And I guess the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history in that you just recently did uh, Frosthaven on Kickstarter, which became the highest grossing game in Kickstarter history or board game and Kickstarter history. So congratulations on that. And uh, from what you tell me, 
Frosthaven is about 50% bigger than Gloomhaven, which blows my mind. Uh-huh. The idea that Gloomhaven is this 25-pound box full of goodies and that Frosthaven is potentially 50% bigger is absolutely crazy. And I'm really curious about how do you how do you do this without losing your mind? And uh, yeah, and but before we get into that, let's let's get a good like working definition. As we're talking about big games, massive games, what does that mean exactly? Like, maybe you don't have like a, a specific guideline. Well, if it goes over two point two five hours, like, but give me just your kind of basic idea as far as like what are we talking about when it comes to big games? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, <clears throat> I don't know. I maybe, maybe it's uh, pretty well aligned with like legacy games. Like, I'm just thinking of games where like. Or, or campaign games, right? Just like a huge amount of content, right? So it's not just, these are all the components that you're going to need to play this one game and you can play it over and over if you want. Um, but, you know, a game that, um, like a, a single a single game of that is like not well-defined, but like there's other stuff like on the periphery that, um, you know, will sort of add add to the like campaign element of the game. So like you play it once and then maybe you add all these other components in and you can play it again, like a different way. I don't know. I, I think that's kind of the, the difficult part <laughs> of, of designing this, this type of game, right. Is that it's not just like a single game. I mean, you know, you could probably call like Terra Mystica or Feast for Odin, like big games with a lot of stuff going on. Um, but but there's just there's like I don't know that extra element of 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 design where you're like not just thinking about a single game but thinking about how this game like evolves and like tells a story over multiple plays. Um, I guess in my mind that's what makes something big <laughs> in in this weird definition that I've created. <laughs> Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you could have a game that only plays 30 minutes at a time, but at the same time takes, you know, 20 hours for a person to go through the whole story, the campaign, the different scenarios. And that would definitely qualify as a, as a big game, as a massive game, because you have all this extra stuff for players to experience. And so, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And now why, why in the world, Isaac, would you design a game that takes, I, I can't imagine how long these game, games take to put together. And so why in the world would you do this kind of thing? Uh, just because it's interesting, <laughs> it it fascinates me. Um, you know that you can tell like this really involved story and like build this entire world that people can experience like through a board game. Um, and yeah, it's just a really fun place to explore. I mean, it takes a long time to to do it. Um, but but for me, like that's it's well worth well worth the time put in. Right. And just the community that's grown up around Gloomhaven, I guess they would also say that the time is worth it. I mean, all the I can't imagine how many hours you put into Gloomhaven and, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But that time is it was well spent because that community loves the game. I mean, it's number one on, on Board Game Geek right now, the highest rated game. And so yeah, obviously time well spent. And so like, how long did Gloomhaven take? Actually, let me back up a second. When you first started designing Gloomhaven, did you picture it 
being as big as it became or did it start off as like a oh, this is going to be a two hour experience and then you just started adding more and more to it tell me kind of like about the genesis of that game uh sure yeah so i mean i know i i know i wanted to like create a campaign game with like a you know a big world that you could kind of explore um you know right right from the start but but even with that like it's important to kind of start small with what you're doing um so so yeah i mean the initial goal was just create like a single good game experience right so we had like i created like this first scenario with you know a couple different monsters and four different um, player classes that that you could you could try out um and then i just kind of like you know played that over and over until you know the core game loop was was fun and interesting uh, and then, like, once you have that, then you can sort of start growing it from there. It's like, okay, well, this is game one of of this campaign. You know, what does game two look like? Like, how does, how does the world evolve from there? And, you know, what are these other elements that you can add to like, keep things interesting over multiple games? Um, yeah, so that's kind of the, the general process. Very cool. Now, when I talk to a lot of new designers, a lot of them have these big ideas for these grandiose games that are two hours, three hour experiences or these long campaigns and that kind of thing. And they get overwhelmed and they don't know where to start. And they have ideas in their head or they've written things down in a notebook, but then they get stuck because it's just such an overwhelming, daunting idea of trying to bring this thing to life. And so a lot of times my advice is, well, just start with one thing at a time, design a combat system, design a movement system, design one little thing without any asymmetrical abilities or cards or powers, just one little thing. Is that like, tell me your advice. Like, that's what I would tell people. Would you tell them something similar or like, tell me kind of your process for starting one of these big ideas? Like, where do you begin? Yeah. I mean, for sure, a game design is an iterative process, right? So you got to start with something and and you create that and, you know, iterate on it and build on it and then iterate on that and then build, you know, keep adding to it and iterating and adding and iterating. Like that's, yeah, that's, that's what you got to do. Like what, you know, no matter how big it is, um, you, yeah, you always start small and, and sort of build from there. So that's definitely uh, good advice. Um, and with, yeah. with Gloomhaven, where did you where did you start? What was the first thing you worked on? Let me think. I mean, yeah. So it was that first scenario, and I mean, you know, I'd, I'd created this other sort of tactical combat game before I started working on Gloomhaven um, that had like some elements. So I, I mean, like I you could consider that like where I started. Um, you know, and it was just this idea of like, how do I uh, you know, what, what's like the basic like tactical combat system that I, that I want to do, you know, do you want to do, um, squares or hexes or, you know, and how do you want the monsters to act or like, you know, the, the mechanics of, of like how, how, how my units work and how enemy units work. And, um, I, yeah, that ended up kind of like failing. And then, um, I think the, the, sort of the, the main seed of like what Gloomhaven actually grew from was like the two card mechanic. Like, uh, so that kind of like sit, sat on the back burner for a while until um, that idea sort of came to me. And then, 
yeah, everything just kind of like snowballed from there. So it was like, okay, so I have I have these these two cards. Like the top of the top half of the card is for attacking, and the bottom half of the card is for moving. Like how so so I need to make a bunch of ability cards for you know the character classes that I want. So you know you create like eight to twelve for each of those character classes, and then and then you know once you have those cards, then you can set them down in in this this tactical uh, combat system. Um, you know, create a simple map and then sort of go from there, like see how that, see how those cards like interact with everything else and sort of iterate from there. Very cool. And then like, how do you know, like how much is too much? You know what I mean? Like you've got a 25 pound <laughs> box, but I'm assuming it could have been 35. It could have been 50. Like you could have just kept designing things. And so how did you know that this many characters is enough? This many scenarios is enough? Like d- tell me your personal understanding of enough. And may, obviously it's going to be maybe a little bit different. Other people might go, I think four characters, 50 scenarios is too much. And you're like, no, we need a yeah. thousand. But like, tell me your personal <laughs> understanding of like how much is enough? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. Cause I, I feel like with Gloomhaven, uh, I, I never really hit that point. Like, and yeah, I think a normal person would have, would have drawn the line somewhere and said, yeah, that's enough. But I, I, for me, it was always just like, I just want to add as much as I can to this. Like, I want to make this feel like as expansive as possible. And so, yeah, I pretty much like threw in every scenario idea I had, every character class idea I had. I just, I just threw it all in that box, and that's kind of one of the reasons it ended up being so so massive. Um, and I, I mean, Frosthaven is is kind of a different story because like now that I I realize sort of the implications of throwing everything in, you know, there, you know, the, I mean, there's going to be like 138 scenarios in Frosthaven, but I think there, there could have been a lot more just, <laughs> and so at some point I did say, okay, well, yeah, this is enough. I guess like 138. Yeah. That that's, that's enough. <laughs> and we could have had more character classes, but again, like I realized I was sort of like using Gloomhaven as a metric where it's just like, okay, well, I don't want to make anything like too much bigger than this. Cause this is already like stupidly big. So we should probably put some limits on ourselves. So yeah, like at the end of the day, Gloomhaven is enough for me. <laughs> and I guess it helps when you are the person in charge of the publishing, because then yeah. you don't have to worry about uh, things as much as, you know, if you're a designer licensing your game to a publisher, then they might think, okay, 10 scenarios is enough. We don't need 138. That's crazy. But if you're in charge, Hey, you, you can put a million in there if you want to. And, uh, but yeah. tell me about Jaws of the Lion. So Jaws of the Lion is like a kind of a, not necessarily a streamlined, but just kind of a smaller version of Gloomhaven. I hadn't played it, but that's kind of what I understand. So tell me about that. Was that your idea or did someone come to you and say, Hey, we want, we love Gloomhaven, but it's too big to sell in our, our stores. Cause I think that one shows up in Target and, and kind of big box stores. And so tell me about that and, and how you determined, all right, let's make this a, a smaller product and then put it out there, maybe making it a little bit more accessible to a, a larger audience. Sure. Yeah. So that was, I can't really, I don't really remember like where the idea originated. I think like I met with uh, PSI like many years ago. They're, they're like, um, I don't know, they're kind of a, a distributor, like two targets. Um, they're, you know, like we love your game. Um, if you have any ideas for like a product that, that could work in, in a target space, 
uh, let us know. Like that was kind of our first meeting like many, many years ago. And I'm like, okay, well, let me think about it. And so that kind of idea percolated for like a year or two. And, um, and you know, I just, I watch, um, people play Gloomhaven. I, you know, I read all the, all the, the feedback on, on board game geek and, and Reddit and all that. And you, know, you sort of, um, I sort of refined this idea of like, okay, yeah, what would it look like? Like if we tried to, to have Gloomhaven reach a wider market, you know, somebody that's not interested in, in the 25 pound, you know, $140 box. Um, you know, what would we, what would we keep? What would we cut out? Like how, how big would the campaign be? Like, you know, how big would the box be? Um, and so that, um, yeah, definitely feels like more, um, like what, uh, a product from, you know, like a, a publisher that's actually concerned about <laughs> getting, getting their, their game on shelves, like what it would actually look like. Um, and, and I don't think we could have done it like from the start though, which is kind of the interesting thing. You know, we kind of had to make this giant thing, uh, and then like cut it down into like what Jaws of the Lion is. Um, and they're, they're two like very different products at the end of the day. Like I'm very happy with both of them. Um, but yeah, I think that's sort of the process of, of, how Jaws of the Lion came to be. Yeah, very cool. Now help me understand a little bit better why you don't think you could have gone in reverse as far as like starting with a, a smaller package and then moving on to like the giant, you know, 25 pound box thing. Yeah, I said that, didn't I? And now I have to think about why I said that. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Is it partially because of the hype and, and just kind of how many people were already on board and you already had this big community built up and maybe it would have been harder to have a smaller product and then move up or just kind of give me your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think that's part of it. Um, I mean, obviously like it's hard for me to say I should have done anything different when, you know, uh, Gloomhaven is <laughs> so successful as it is. Um, and so, so yeah, like the, the way things happen just seems like the natural way things should have happened to me. Um, but I think like a lot of game design is sort of like taking all these big ideas and then like distilling them down into, you know, the perfect product. Um, and so, yeah, maybe, maybe I could have done that. Maybe like I could have just never released Gloomhaven and just like made this giant thing and then cut it down and in, into something like Jaws of the Lion. But at the same time, like, I don't know, they are two different products. So like, I, I think, you know, I, the world has a place for both of them, but, um, but yeah, it's this idea of, I, I think like a lot of board games, like start bigger than they actually end up being, um, because they're sort of edited and, and distilled down into like the optimal play experience. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there should be like more sort of like large, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like not unrefined, but just like a little rough around the edges games. <laughs> yeah. And I think you bring up a great point. They're two different products and they're not necessarily for the same target audience. I think there is, there's going to be some overlap. Obviously the people, some people that love Gloomhaven are going to love Jaws of Lion and for similar reasons, but at the same time, 
someone who sits down with their playgroup and they're like, hey, we're going to go through all 100 of these scenarios. Like that's a different type of player than someone that sits down and says, you know, I, I just want to play through the 12 uh, missions of Pandemic Legacy and 12 is enough. Like those yeah. are two different types of, of gamers. And so, yeah, I think that's something interesting to think through is who is your target audience? And something I'm working on right now is this, it's a pretty massive game in scope. It didn't start off that way, but it turned into it. The more I added to it, the more I wanted to add story. And I want to get your ideas on story here in just a minute because I'm, I'm sitting here taking notes for a lot of stuff myself. Uh, and this game I'm working on, it's basically Pokemon mixed with Mega Man in this kind of big sprawling open world and you're doing cool stuff and there's puzzles and it's hopefully going to be a really fun experience. It takes roughly 30 hours or so to get through. And right. I thought about like, do I want to, do I want to go the Gloomhaven route? Do I want to have this massive box full of stuff, or you know, do I want to go smaller at a time and, and offer expansions? Where here's the open world, and if you want to go way off in the distance to the right, well, here's an expansion that's twenty bucks, thirty bucks, something like that, and you can do that. Or if you want to go way off on, on to the left after you kind of finish the game and you want to go explore to the left, well, here's a different expansion where you can go do that instead. And that's kind of the approach. I'm taking because I think that's more in line with what my target audience is going to want. But at the same time, there's, I don't know that there's a wrong answer. It's just about figuring out, you know, who is the game for and then how do we market it towards them both in marketing, but also as the size of the game, the weight of the game, the, uh, the number of hours of content inside there. And then just kind of go from there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean like, yeah, Gloomhaven is like a, lifestyle commitments right i mean so and yeah not everyone wants that and so like i was i was genuinely surprised at like how well it did like given that right um like it, the audience for it ended up being much much bigger than i expected i, I never yeah never imagined it would, it would do as well as it did um but then also like you know it sort of leads you yeah, to, to that Jaws of Lion approach where like, okay, well, it's like so many people love this when it, when it, when there are so many barriers to entry, like if we were able to take them all out, like how many more people could we get on board? Um, and that was sort of the, one of the impetuses behind uh, Jaws of the Lion. Um, but yeah, the other thing uh, that you talked about, right, is like the, the path of like one giant game versus like a smaller game with lots of little expansions. Like, I don't know, like, I still, I still couldn't tell you, like, how, how I could have, like, chopped Gloomhaven up, you know, where it's like, oh, well, yeah, if you want to do a scenario over here in, in the Dagger Forest or whatever, like, you got to buy this expansion, like, the, the world, because I wanted the, you know, the world to just, like, feel so interconnected and have everything connected to each other, like, I couldn't imagine, like, you know, chopping, you know, scenarios 70 to, to 90 off into their own their own separate products like it yeah that would have been much harder and maybe that's like <laughs> my limitation as as a designer like maybe there is a way to to do that uh appropriately but i could figure it out yeah that makes a lot of sense now how in the world do you hold a player's attention for a hundred scenarios, like what are some things you, you did in the design process as far as like maybe, you know, living up your characters and the world changing, but just tell me your thoughts on keeping people's attention so that they stick around for so many games. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there's sort of an inherent draw to just like a campaign um, and sort of, you know, 
getting like this this longer story and and seeing where how things go um over a long period of time um i mean like you know uh take like pandemic legacy for instance uh i mean i i kind of feel bad saying this but like i don't really like pandemic <laughs> like the the core gameplay loop of pandemic i just i don't find that interesting but you know you make a legacy version of it where like things change uh from game to game and you get like the story and you want to see like what's what's going to happen next like what's oh what's going to happen after that um and it becomes like far more compelling to me um and so so yeah like i, I really enjoyed like playing through pandemic legacy season one and two um and, and i think there's like just doing that i think will add sort of that element for people but I mean, it also helps if that core gameplay loop is uh, is entertaining and fun for people. Um, and so, you know, I think a lot of the success of Gloomhaven just comes from that that two card mechanic and how how interesting it is to just sit down with your hand of cards and like figure out okay, which two cards do I want to play and how do I want to play them and how's that going to affect my future turns. There's just like a lot of depth to to that that core gameplay loop that I think um, sort of engages with a lot of people. Um, but then, you know, sort of going back to that, that campaign element though, like it's also important to um, constantly like reward players, right? Like just hit them with that dopamine like over and over, right? As much as you can. And so, you know, with, with character progression and sort of um, other, other types of progression, you know, like, after every game of Gloomhaven, like you're always getting something, like whether it's a new item or you're getting perks or you're, or you're leveling up and getting new cards to choose from. Um, you know, you do want to kind of make every game they play different. And uh, another big part of that for Gloomhaven was was the retirement system. You know, where after you play like 10 to 15 games, also now you're retiring your character and you're you're unlocking this entirely new character class that plays completely differently, which is exciting. And then you immediately get to, you know, pick them up and start playing with them. And now you're playing like an entirely new game. Like you've got entirely new cards and you're making entirely new decisions. And so, so yeah, just having, having a really solid core gameplay loop and then just constantly um, changing the, the game like from from game to game so like it's always new every time you play it i think those are kind of the two key elements of of keeping people interested yeah and i think you really cracked the code on how to do this effectively both with you know there's always new stuff whether i'm gaining new cards for my deck and now how am i going to use these cards and to make really cool new combinations and, and i love how Every time you sit down to play a, a scenario with you know the combat, it's it's a new puzzle to solve. It's like okay, how am I going to use these cards that I have, uh, and and the cards that I, I know are in my deck coming up? And okay, that enemy's over there, and that treasure chest is there, and we got to do this and that. It's a new puzzle every single time. And then, like you said, you know, 10, 15, 20 games in, now I get new puzzles to figure out because I have a new character and everything is it's all of a sudden exciting again. It's not like going through a hundred scenarios with the exact same character that it gets a little yeah. bit samey. It's like, no, it's, we get new stuff, get new ways for the game to play out. And, and it's fun. And I think that's, that's the thing. How, how do you make 
the core of your game, and in your case, it's it's combat. How do you make that as fun as possible? Because that's the thing that people do the most. And so really focusing in on that, I think, is, is really the way to go. Uh, but let's talk about some of the other things going on. You have some story elements where it's a little bit uh, legacy where, you know, your choices on, on one little story might affect something that happens later in the game and things like that. Tell me how you handled story, how you kept track of everything. There's so many different options uh-huh. and things that can play into it. Tell me about the, the story piece of the game. Oh, sure. So, um, I mean, I kind of, I approached it, you know, from a, a background of, you know, like DMing D and D campaigns, um, where, you know, where you sort of kind of like build this world um, for your players and uh, then in some respects just kind of like react to what they do, um, but then also like, you know, drop in, um, you know, interesting nuggets here and there that they or threads, right, that they can they can follow along and, and play out with. Um, and so I guess sort of that same mentality came into this the creation of, of Gloomhaven where I, I don't know, I never really considered like this, like a, a, a standard like story arc to kind of be the main focus of the game. So, you know, there's kind of like a, a final scenario where you fight a final boss. Um, but I really wanted it to feel more of just like this open world that, that people could just kind of do whatever they wanted in. So there's like, like half the scenarios are side scenarios. Um, you know, so you're always able to like, oh, well, let's just go over there and see what's over there. Um, and there'll be something interesting over there for you, for you to explore. So, so that was my approach to story. Um, so, and also in order to do that, right, there's, I, I also wanted to create kind of like a, a choose your own adventure type thing, like where, you know, the, it, the story was not linear. Um, where, you know, you make one decision and that will inevitably lead to more decisions and you just keep like making decisions and branching off in, in different, different directions. Um, and I think that was successful to some extent, also like unsuccessful, like for a lot of people, it was hard to kind of follow what the story was, you know, cause maybe you're only playing like once a week and so you sit down, you're like, oh, we'll try this scenario. And then there's some, some story text and you're like, oh, what? I don't remember what happened in the last scenario or three scenarios back. Um, and so there's some of that. Um, but I also like maybe for those reasons, tried to keep the story like a little simpler. Like it's also not, like not, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say, <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, yeah. So there's just like a little bit of story nuggets in there, but that's not like grand epic writing of some like i don't know massive world ending thing necessarily it's just kind of like a bunch of little stories kind of connected together that's kind of how i wanted it to feel and yeah i guess that's it (laughs) yeah but that makes sense because again that's not the core of your game people aren't coming to gloomhaven because they want to read a novel they're coming to gloomhaven for the puzzle of that combat system and so i think really understanding that and making the story smaller makes A lot of sense. Now, when it comes to dealing with balance, especially when you have an open world or at least a somewhat open world, 
Uh, how do you make sure that players aren't going into scenarios and just getting crushed or just like breezing through it because it's too easy? You know, in video games, they have a couple different ways where sometimes they just let you go and you, you do get crushed and you go, okay, I'm not going to go back there until I am 10 levels stronger and then I'll, I'll deal with that. Or the uh, the system levels up for you. So no matter where you go, the enemies are always kind of leveled appropriately compared to your level. Uh, tell yeah. me how you handled that in, in your game, Gloomhaven and Frosthaven, you know, d- depending on if it's different. Yeah, so that second approach is kind of what I had to do, um, largely because of the nature of the story and how, like, you can basically, you know, could like go into any scenario at sort of any point in your in your journey. Um, you know, one one group might go into this side scenario at level one, and another group might go in there at level nine, and like it, the the game needs to be challenging um, in both in both cases. So, so yeah, I mean, there's just a very simple system of, of as you level up, you know, the monsters level up with you. So they have, they have levels themselves, um, that kind of scale with you. And I mean, I think in some respects, I think a lot of people will agree that sort of as you level up, like, um, the game doesn't quite level up at the same rate. And so by the end of it, you kind of feel uh a little bit overpowered compared to the monsters and and typically like people will up up the difficulty which is the other thing you can do right in the game is if you're at any point if you feel like it's too easy you can just artificially level up the monsters to whatever whatever you want to make it as challenging as you want and so a lot of people end up doing that with gloomhaven you know they'll do it on plus one or plus two difficulty uh to keep it interesting Uh, and then with frosthaven like we're trying to balance it a little better so hopefully um, there'll be less of that, right? Because like you don't necessarily want to have, you don't want to depend on your player to um, do that all the time, right? I mean, ideally, you should be doing that yourself, like within the own, their own systems, and you're just using like the the difficulty setting as a as a stopgap. So like, you know, because you also you also have to like design for different skill levels. Um, <laughs> So there does there does need to be some variability with with what the player can choose to do for themselves with increasing the difficulty because you know some players are better than other players. So, um, but yeah, it's it's all about creating like a yeah a malleable difficulty system that will naturally increase over time, but also giving players the flexibility to to change it themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good way to uh, to, to conquer that design challenge another huge design challenge is the game has to remember so it's not like a normal game where you put it back in the box and it doesn't matter what happened last session because we're going to start over from the beginning these games need to remember where you were what happened what uh, how you leveled up how much gold you have all those kinds of things so tell me about the systems that you came up with to basically track changes i know there's stickers i know there's different things going on tell me about that process of figuring out okay how do we save the game over and over and over again uh yeah so so yeah i think one of the main things is just you know what scenarios you have unlocked um you know which we did through you know the world map with all the stickers that you place on it and then you sort of cross them off as you complete them um and you know i think that ended up being like a really interesting feature for the game just because um the world map itself becomes like so evocative of your experience you know, it starts off as kind of like this blank slate. And then the more you play, like the more you sort of fill in all the little corners of the world and 
all the different little things that you can do. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that ended up being really, really cool way to, to track that. And then, you know, other than that, you're just also tracking, you know, character progression or the other types of progression, like, like prosperity level and stuff. And so, yeah, just, you know, using notepads, um, you know, each character has a notepad, you've got a notepad for your party to like sort of track the reputation. You're tracking the prosperity along the bottom of the map board. And so, yeah, you just kind of got to accept that, um, you know, this is a, this is a, a thing that's going to have like permanent change to it. So you're going to take your pencils, you're going to take your markers and you're going to mark it up. You're going to put stickers on it. Um, and that's how it remembers is by making permanent changes and, and in that way, like it almost feels, um, like more of a, a, like a lasting, like meaningful experience, right? Because you are making these permanent changes to your game that you can't unchange. Yeah, definitely. For my own game, this is something I, I looked a lot at. It's like, how do you how do you do this? And I took a lot of cues from Dungeons and Dragons, where you have your character sheet, and it is expected that you're going to write on this thing, and you might even have to print off a new one because you've written on it so many times. And you know, are you yeah. going to be able to do different things and, and add stickers to it, or, or make these permanent changes just to kind of keep track and, and make it easy? And I think that's one way to do it. And there's, there's lots of different ways. And there's lots of save systems now with other games. It's interesting. You know, Seventh Continent, uh, Tainted yeah. Grail. Like, there's a lot of different ways that games have, have overcome this in different ways. Now, when it comes to the different scenarios, and you have 100 plus in your games, how do you keep those interesting? How do you make sure that, you know, scenario 12 is just as interesting as scenario 7 and scenario 85 is just as interesting as the ones before it. How do you ensure that? How, like, what are some things you do to make things uh, interesting to the players, no matter which scenario they're playing? So I think, I mean, the main thing we did there was just have like a huge variety of monsters. Um, and so that's, that's something like a lot of dungeon crawls end up like, prohibiting themselves against doing by by focusing on like miniatures um you know i think i don't know i feel i i can't think even now of like another like dungeon crawl game that uses like standees instead of miniatures because like i don't know that the community seems like so focused on miniatures and like how how beautiful they are and all that and that's that's great but like to me that's like not um necessary for like a, a good gameplay experience like for me it's all just about the mechanics and so i wanted to sort of get away from that and and really focus on on yeah like making this an interesting experience that somebody can play like a hundred times and not feel like they're doing the same thing over and over and so yeah one of the necessary parts to that was having a large variety of monsters to sort of pick from so you're always going up against something new and trying to figure out how they work um, and and sort of reacting to to their abilities, right? Because like it's not just all these monsters aren't just like oh well this one has you know three attack and this one has four attack and that's why they're different. Like each set of monsters has a different deck of ability cards, um, and so we have you know a separate deck for all the monsters, which is um, a lot of cards at the end of the day. But I think it, it works out really well. So like especially that first time you, you approach a monster that you've never seen, like you don't know what that deck is going to do. And so you're just kind of almost like sitting there 
defensively like okay what are they going to do like we you know we got to learn like how to how to react to you know all their various unique abilities uh and so yeah i think that's that's sort of the main part of of keeping things interesting and you know there's um a lot of people like to complain about how like uh gloomhaven like a lot of the scenarios are just kill all enemies like oh this is the same um goal again and again but like each time it's still different like if you sit down and play it um you know you're gonna get a different experience every time because you're fighting different monsters there's a different map um which leads to different tactics you know depending on the layout of like obstacles and stuff like that um and so yeah i mean if you create enough content enough monsters enough map tiles enough other features that you can put on the map tiles like it's very easy to create these different experiences and then in addition to that like you can create scenarios other than uh kill all monsters which we are trying to do more in Frosthaven. uh really sort of like stretch the limits of like you know what you can do um with scenarios and um you know interesting special rules that like aren't too complicated um you know ideally like they're just there's these x small extra rules that just completely change the scenarios in different ways um so you're always having to to think on your feet and and try try new things so yeah right right that makes a lot of sense and every scenario is a different puzzle so even if it is kill all the things it's still a different puzzle the way that that's going to be accomplished and i think as designers of board games we can also learn from video game designers think about a game like dark souls that game is really just go kill the big bad boss monsters, but you, yeah. you're never sure how that boss monster is going going to behave. How are they going to move? How are they going to attack? How are they going to do different things? And it even takes typically several tries before you figure out the patterns and you can actually overcome that battle. And, and people are obviously drawn to that game and those, and those games like it. And so I think there's something we can definitely learn from those. Now, when it comes to other things you've learned in the process of going into Frosthaven, things you learned from Gloomhaven. Tell me about some of the other uh, game design things that you picked up along the way. They're like, okay, let's, let's do this a little bit differently. Let's do this in a new way as far as going into Frosthaven. Yeah. I mean, like the evolution of Gloomhaven to Frosthaven, um, I think sort of adding more, more in between scenario elements, I think is, is going to be uh, a really interesting and engaging aspect uh, of Frosthaven. Um, you know, cause like, uh, a lot of people, you know, or, you know, you see Gloomhaven as just, yeah, one combat after another, and there's not really anything else interesting going on. You can do some light role-playing if you want. Um, but, and, and a lot of people, you know, that's why they come. That's why they enjoy the game. Cause it's cause of the combat. But I, I really wanted to like sort of create more in-between stuff to, I think it'll help people sort of engage with the world a bit more, you know, so you've got this uh, town that you're like trying to keep alive and like build up sort of gathering resources to build different buildings. that will help you out in different ways, both in and out of combat. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping like, yeah, it'll allow people to sort of engage with the story and engage with the world a little bit more. Um, and so, yeah, just, yeah, because really at the end of the day, like I just want to create like as an immersive experience as possible. And so I think that's important to me. Um, yeah, and then just, I don't know, also just iterating on Gloomhaven is just kind of taking things in, in a slightly more complex direction, you know, so you've got more, more interesting 
diverse characters that are doing different things that you haven't seen before. Um, new monsters that are, you know, doing different things you haven't seen before. So yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it's hard to like point to like one specific thing and say, well, yeah, I learned that. And so this is what we're doing now, but it's just kind of like, yeah, everything is just sort of this evolution of what was in Gloomhaven, just kind of taking it to the next level <laughs> with, with Frosthaven. I don't know. Awesome. Let's move over into the business side of things when it comes to hiring help and project management and marketing and Kickstarter and all of that. Tell me about your process of project management, uh, especially early on when you were working on Gloomhaven. Like, was it just you by yourself? And now you've moved on to having <laughs> partners and other teammates. Tell me about kind of the, the team of people that worked on Gloomhaven or didn't. Maybe it was you. I don't know. Maybe you're just a wizard that uh, did all of it. I, I'm not sure. But just tell me about that side of things. Uh, yeah, I, Gloomhaven, that was a, that was a trip. I, I don't even know, like <laughs> looking back on it, you know, I guess that was like five, five years ago. I was kind of in the, in the thick of, of working on this game and yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to say like, oh yeah, it was just me. I mean, you know, I had a, an artist, a graphic designer, um, I had some playtesting help, some, some people helping like create scenarios. Um, but yeah, I mean, for the most part, it, it was just me like sitting at my computer for like, uh, 18 months or something and, and, and cracking out this game. Uh, and I honestly, I don't know how I did it. I, it was just a lot of work and I, I don't even have like a good project management system. Like, it's just like, I kind of just kept a lot of the intricacies just sort of in my head and just like, okay, well now I, today I'm working on these scenarios and tomorrow I'm working on these scenarios and then we're going to figure out how to put them all together and create all these items and create these new characters and, and, uh, you know, play test them. And I don't know, it was just, I mean, it took forever, but, uh, at the end of the day, it got done. And I look back on it and I'm, I'm not sure. Cause like, Things have like progressed significantly since then. Like working on Frosthaven has been a much different experience because now like we do have more people in the company and like their help has been tremendous, like to the point of like um like I'm still struggling to get everything done, even though now like I have all these people like doing all this other stuff for me. And it's like, well, how before on Gloomhaven, like, how did I do all the stuff I'm doing and do all the stuff they're doing? <laughs> like, how did that happen? I can't even, I can't even fathom it anymore. So I, I don't know. I don't know if I can answer for you. <laughs> now, what are some of the things that people are helping you with now? So just, uh, well, I mean, for once, well, for one, like just the business aspect of things, you know, so I have like a, uh, an operations manager, who kind of handles a lot of the business oriented stuff. And I guess like dealing with Gloomhaven, um, I didn't really have to do that. I mean, I had like the Kickstarter and I had to keep up with that and, you know, sort of communicate with all the, all the fans of the Kickstarter directly, which, which took a lot of time um, or, you know, the backers of the Kickstarter. Uh, but I also like, you know, I wasn't dealing with, you know, with, um, you know, licensing and, and translations and all that stuff back then, because I was 
it had nothing had been made yet. So yeah, in some respects, like I guess that stuff uh, wasn't a, as big a deal back then. But also, yeah, just like a community community manager now who who is like you know looking at all the Kickstarter responses and answering them and um, just doing all that myself. I remember taking up just like a huge amount of time. Um, but then also, yeah, on the other side, um, I have a lot of development help now. Um, and so, you know, I've got like a team of people who, who help develop a lot of the systems in Frosthaven, uh, sort of the new systems in Frosthaven and, you know, that's, that's been a huge help. And then also all of the playtesting, um, like the whole playtesting community we've sort of built up um, didn't really exist much um, back in the Gloomhaven days. And I was basically just organizing playtesting myself, like with just my friends every week. Um, and that was, that was pretty much it. And then also like all the guest designs um, that were, that were done um, you know, as part of like the, the Frosthaven Kickstarter. So you know, I've only designed maybe about like half the scenarios in Frosthaven. Um, and so a lot of other people have, have worked uh, there to, to help out. Very cool. Now, when did you know when to hire some of these people? Like at what threshold did you go, okay, this is too much for me, too many comments. There's too much to think about on the business side. How did you know when to start reaching out and hiring other people? Yeah, I don't... I don't really hire people until like I hey, absolutely have to, which is probably not the best philosophy. Um, yeah, so there was a point. So yeah, it was it was just me like running the company, doing everything um, up until uh, sometime after like the second Gloomhaven Kickstarter. So you know the one that launched after the after the the first printing was released, and you know it was like four million dollars, however many backers that was i guess it was 40 no yeah forty thousand backers because it was like about a hundred dollars a piece anyway yeah so i had like this kickstarter with like forty thousand backers um and i realized like i just wasn't gonna be able to uh communicate with all of them and still do everything else i needed to do uh so that's really the first thing i did um was like i hired uh Price Johnson part-time and then over time like he ended up like just taking on more and more responsibility as I you know just kept getting more and more overwhelmed with everything I was doing and so so now like eventually I hired him full-time as as like an operations uh, marketing manager um, and then you know even at that point now he's got all these other responsibilities you know because the company continues to grow like you know now we've got localization partners and, you know, we're dealing with licensing for, you know, comics and, and everything else that's happening, you know, so at some point he's like, well, I, I can't handle all this either. Like, so now we need to hire somebody else to like sort of take over the community management, especially as we were like approaching the Frosthaven Kickstarter. Um, and then, you know, we sort of realized that I was sort of falling behind on my duties as like a sort of creative manager, you know, dealing with, uh, artists and, and graphic design and all of that, you know, that's something I would handle myself sort of directing artists and, and graphic designers on, on what exactly to, to be working on. And I was sort of falling behind on that. So then eventually we hired a, a creative director as well. Um, and that's pretty much where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. 
it makes makes a lot of sense. And I feel like once you get to a place where you're spending too much time, and that's going to be different for everybody, whatever you decide is too much time on things that aren't helping move the company forward or aren't yeah. helping getting more games designed, or maybe you just don't like it or you're not good at it. That's something I ran into with several campaigns I, I recently ran. It's like, I'm just not great at logistics and I hate it. So let yeah. me hire someone to help with shipping and fulfillment. And uh, my life became much better because of it. And so I, I think this is something a lot of people can learn is like, how do you figure out how to kind of multiply yourself through other people and get more done along the way? Now, yeah, let's absolutely. talk. let's talk about timelines how do you figure out how long a game like this is going to take you know you talk about 18 months of just staring at your computer and getting things done was that about how long you thought it would take was that longer was it shorter like how do you figure out okay there's 138 scenarios it's going to take me two weeks to do each one like help me understand breaking down (laughs) timelines so you actually get things delivered to backers when you tell them you will uh well yeah i'm certainly not the authority on that um because i am notoriously late <laughs> with my kickstarters um you know just yeah i i am i am not uh good at engaging like how much time it's going to take me to do things i always like overestimate my ability and then even when i sort of try and compensate for that it's like okay well I, i'm overestimating how quickly i'll be able to get this done so let's add a couple months and it's still like oh well no actually I probably should have added like six months um <laughs> so So yeah, I don't necessarily have a good answer to that. Uh, What I can tell you though, is like, especially in terms of like Kickstarter, you know, if you, even if you can't like accurately determine like how long your project is going to take, you know, you know, try and give as honest and informed answer as you can. Um, But the, I think the most important thing is also just to um, provide constant communication to your backers. You know, so if something goes wrong or something is taking longer than than you thought it was initially, you know, just just tell your backers, like just constantly communicate with them about where you are with your timeline, what's going on, you know, what you did over the past two weeks or whatever. Uh, and typically, like that has been just a huge benefit to me and just um, my my Kickstarter backers sort of understanding, you know, where I'm coming from, like why things are taking longer than initially projected and. And they're very understanding, I, I feel. Like as long as you're honest and upfront with them uh, and don't like disappear for months at a time. Um, that's that's kind of my my solution to um, not being very good at, at figuring out how long things take. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like you said, communicate. Just openly communicate about the things that are going on. People tend to be very understanding when things pop up, especially things out of your control. I mean, with games... Who knows how long international shipping might take? It might be a month longer than you anticipated or things at the factory, something might happen. Or when you're you know, uh, producing 40,000 games, I, I can't imagine, how big was the print run? So if you had 40,000 backers, how many games did you print in total for that? Oh, that print run, I think it was 80,000 because we also had like at least like, yeah, 20,000 retail orders that we weren't able to fulfill from the first printing. Um, and then, you know, well, some more on top of that so that we wouldn't have to immediately do a third printing after that. So yeah, that was, that was a big print run. Yeah. That's crazy. How long did that take just at the factory to print that many games? Uh, I don't know. It was a while ago, but yeah, it took a while, you know, cause, oh, I mean, I could do the math real fast here. 
right? Because there's like, how many games can I fit on a container? Uh, I mean, in terms of Gloomhaven, you know, we're putting, I think, I think it was like either 32 or 36 games on a pallet, like, because it was palletized, like, you know, each box, each game was in its own box because it was so big. So like you have 36 uh, games and, you know, you got 20 pallets in a container. So then you're looking at 720, something around there, uh, games per, per container. And then you're able to ship out, you know, maybe like 20 contain 20 containers. I don't know. Anyway, I'm getting into the weeds here, but, um, but yeah, your, your factory can only produce so much at a time and we're using a pretty big factory. Um, so that, that, that can, um, vary greatly depending on what, what factory you're using. So that's, yeah, if, if you're working on a big game, it's definitely a good thing to know, like how, how quickly, um, they can get that out. Sorry. I'm kind of floundering here with the question. Cause I, I don't, I don't remember, but <laughs> no yeah, it was like at least a, a month or two, like from, from when that started getting shipped out to when it was done getting shipped out. Yeah. It just takes a long time. It's not even just the design and the art and all that. It's all the other stuff that goes in it that have to be uh, accounted for. Now, when it comes to marketing one of these kind of games, how do you build hype? And like we just said, it's going to take a long time for the game to come out. And so you don't necessarily want to build up too much hype and then wait two years necessarily for the game to come out and actually get <laughs> on people's tables. So how do you manage hype? How do you deal with marketing for one of these massive games? Yeah, so I mean, I think that kind of goes back to the earlier question of of yeah, I was I was doing it all myself, and uh, I'm certainly not a marketing expert, so I had no idea what I was doing, and it just kind of worked out anyway, <laughs> um, just based on the strength of the game, I think. Um, but yeah, going into Frosthaven, I think I can, um, you know, my experiences with that, I probably answer the question a little bit better because I think we did. Uh, do a lot of intelligent marketing on that. Yeah, just in terms of like when we announced it and sort of leading up to the Kickstarter and all that. I mean, yeah, because like I started working on Frosthaven like almost as soon as like Gloomhaven was to the printer. <laughs> you know, I sort of came up with this initial concept. But yeah, it's like I can't I can't like announce anything about it um, right now because like it's not going to come out for five, six years. So that doesn't make any sense. Um, so yeah, we sort of waited and I, you know, just kept working on it and working on it, working on it. And I think that's generally how it is in the industry until, you know, you sort of get an idea of, of, of when it will come out. And then you sort of work back from there, like, okay, well, when should we launch the Kickstarter? When should we announce the Kickstarter? Um, and all that, when should we sort of tease things out a little bit at a time? So, so yeah, we decided, um, you know, ultimately, like, based on the initial plan, like, Frosthaven would have been out already, um, or at least, um, you know, sort of being shipped out at this point. So we're definitely, like, behind schedule. But anyway, so, yeah, the, the initial idea was that, yeah, we could probably run the Kickstarter early last year, which so we did, so we should probably, like, announce around PAX. And so, yeah, we put a lot of effort into, like, that, that big announcement at PAX uh, back in 2019, uh, sorry, PAX Unplugged, which I think like worked out really well. And like, we kind of like took over that convention to, to some extent, you know, we had this 
uh, really stupid idea of, of like making a bunch of, of foam Algox horns, um, which if you were at the convention you saw were just everywhere. We kind of got that idea from an earlier convention show, or we, yeah, we went when we went to PAX West. Um, there was some like new version of like Dragon Ball coming out, um, you know, for for some as some video game. And it, like everyone was running around with like these these similar concept of like this foam headband that had like Goku hair, like you know sort of Super Saiyan Goku hair coming up, and we're like, yeah, that's uh, that's a really effective marketing tool. We should probably do that. So we we made some some horns for for Pax Unplugged, and yeah, just had like a big booth and had you know just uh, lots lots of cool stuff going on at the booth to kind of build up hype, and I think that sort of worked really well to then kind of like roll that hype over the next couple of months into the actual Kickstarter and just get everybody excited about it, you know, constantly sort of releasing new content, um, you know, sort of what little snippets of like what was, what was going to be involved in that. And then, you know, once you're on the Kickstarter and it's like successful, then you've got sort of your own captive audience after that, you know, we've got like um, however many backers, we have for the for the Kickstarter, they're getting emails every every week, every two weeks from me, sort of on updates. So I can kind of ideally like keep them interested in the product um, until it actually arrives. By I, I kind of like try to give them you know snippets of information or like explain new mechanics that are being introduced. Like over time, like I try to each update, I try to add something in there to to keep them interested. But yeah, I mean it's a wholly different experience for something like Frosthaven than it is for somebody new to the industry. Right. Cause like, obviously we just have this huge built-in audience already, a bunch of people just already like clamoring for whatever we do next because of, of their experience with our, with our previous games. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a first time publisher, first time designer, like it's a, entirely entirely different landscape um and i mean i could speak to that somewhat you know with my first projects um with forge war but also that was again like you know six seven years ago um and so in that last six seven years things have, have changed dramatically where like i'm not sure well yeah, i can i can tell you for sure like what i did with forge war and like making it be successful like seven years ago it would not have worked today like with how i don't know how much bigger the industry is how much bigger like the kickstarter industry is and all that so i don't know i guess i'm done answering that question for now <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely you know as much as it is different for you because you had this huge community and all that it's still got some similar concepts one of the main ones i want to highlight is the nurturing of your email list and making sure you're sending out regular updates. And even if you're only updating in a small way or just posting, hey, I did a play test and here's a picture from it of the, the prototype, whatever. But just constantly, once every couple of weeks at least, once a month at, at minimum, uh, sending emails out to your list and saying, hey, the game's moving along. and Because it just keeps the, uh, the game on people's minds. It keeps it kind of front of their attention. And so when the game does release on Kickstarter or come out and pre-order or whatever, that uh, people are aware of it. They're like, oh yeah, this game, I've been hearing about it throughout its entire uh, progression. And so, you know, I'm definitely going to yeah. show up. Now, when it comes to Kickstarter, how much do you have done? Like what, give me an idea, maybe percentage or, or scenarios, something like that. How much should you have done before the Kickstarter? Like when the Kickstarter launches, how much of the game should be finished so that people can see it, 
previewers can take a look at it on their YouTube channels. Give me, give me some ideas. Yeah. I mean, there's sort of, there are different philosophies there. Um, and I think, um, a lot of companies are sort of approaching it now as like, it should be like almost completely done. Um, by the time it hits Kickstarter. And I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of validity to, to that philosophy. Um, you know, you've seen like recent Kickstarters, I don't know, like, like Darwin's journey, for instance, um, which, you know, the game was pretty much done when it came on Kickstarter and that was really successful, uh, from my point of view, because like they had like a, a really well scripted, like fully implemented version of it on tabletop simulator. So like people can just go and like play the game, like just play like the game, like as it will actually look on your table, like with all the rules already implemented and everything. Uh, it was just, I don't know. I've, I was very impressed by the, by the tabletop simulator module. And that really sort of helps cement like, Oh, well, whether I'm going to like this game or not, like, um, and I think that's, that is sort of becoming a bigger thing, especially uh, in the pandemic, you know, this, you know, the, the importance and, and use of, of tabletop simulator as, as a, a marketing tool for, for your Kickstarters, I guess. Uh, sorry, got a little weeds on, on what I was talking about there, but no worries. Yeah, I totally agree. It's something to definitely keep in mind is, is how much, how much are you going to have done? You know, having only 10% done might not be enough in today's market with so many companies that have beautiful, amazing games that, like you're saying, have fully fleshed out tabletop simulator modules. It's just something to definitely yeah. keep in mind. This is, like you said, this is not the Kickstarter of six or seven years ago. This is a very different world and you just have to go with it. You, you can yeah. complain about it, you can fight against it, or you can just kind of go with it and work it. To what your I, benefit. yeah, what I try to do though, or what I ended up doing, right, is like, I, I don't know, I think something more like 50%. I mean, that might be a little low. I mean, it depends on the type of game you're trying to make as well. Um, yeah, so if you're making like a, you know, a tight, like economic Euro, like, yeah, you, you want to have all the mechanics in place um, before you bring it to Kickstarter. Like you want that gameplay to be to be solid. Which is in terms of something like Frosthaven where it's sort of a campaign thing where you've got all this sort of extra content that you're creating on top of like the core gameplay mechanics um yeah i would say like not all of that has to be finished um but also because like it allows you know it to be a little flexible during the kickstarter um you know because your kickstarter audience is a valuable resource you know like a lot of um our play testers have sort of come from that um but also you know a lot of the updates you know i'll show them like, this is, this is what we're designing right now. Like this is the new look for the character cards or the character mats or, or whatever we're working on. And we can get feedback directly from the community and sort of pivot or, you know, change based on that feedback. You know, if like there's something, you know, our team didn't think about when they were designing that, somebody can point that out and be like, oh yeah, we can, we can change that. So I think it's important that you're still able to um, sort of take the, the feedback of your community and and work it into the design like it shouldn't be you know finished to the point that you aren't able to do that anymore 
Oh yeah, I completely agree on that. Something I'm doing for my game is I took some cues from the video game world, which often they'll come up with a demo. Like here's the first hour of gameplay and just to see how the mechanisms work and understand maybe a little bit of the story and here's what the art's going to look like. And so that's what I'm working on right now is creating a demo copy effectively of the game that I can send out to previewers and I can put out online that people can download and print off and, and play through at home. And just to say, hey, here's the first few hours of content. Here, how, Here's how the game plays. Here's the mechanisms and how everything works. And if you like it, back it on Kickstarter because this is the first four hours and the rest of the game is going to have X number of more hours that you can go through and all sorts of new surprises and new ways that the game is going to do stuff. But here's the core. Here's how it starts. Here's the opening of the story. And I'm hoping that that draws people in. If they get to experience the, the first little bit of it, first, you know, 5% of the game, and then they go, ooh, I can't wait to see the other 95% and how the story plays out, how the game changes and does interesting things. So I think, you know, we can also learn a lot from video games when it comes to these massive games with, with huge uh, scope, with lots of scenarios and lots of legacy elements. Now, yeah, sure. is there anything else you want to talk about from kind of the business side of things? Any the marketing, the project management, the any of the kind of dollars and cents business side? Uh, yeah, I mean, just yeah, just to reiterate your point about audience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that is is eternal and like is helpful. You know, for my Kickstarter seven years ago, uh, as much as it is for for Kickstarters today, is yeah, it's all about like cultivating and growing your audience and and doing whatever you can to do that whether it's through mailing lists or you know a website and and a blog and, and whatever you're doing like yeah you want to constantly be trying to to build that audience and get people interested in in what you're working on yeah absolutely well isaac this has been excellent closing thoughts what would you tell someone they're listening to this they've got an idea for a massive game a really big in scope game but maybe they're a newer designer maybe they're just trying to figure this whole thing out what would be some closing thoughts maybe some best advice you would give to somebody listening uh just go for it man <laughs> uh like people can can limit themselves like based on like what they what they think they can accomplish um and you know if something seems too hard they'll you know just kind of decide they can't do it. Um, but I think, I don't know. I feel like somehow like I've got some weird thing in my brain that is always interested in like the bigger challenge. Like nothing is, is, is too hard. Like, even though like some things like are impossible for me, like I don't realize they are and I'll just keep doing it over and over. And I might fail, like I might, it might actually be impossible, but, um, you gotta just have that drive to, to just try things that you think are impossible. Cause sometimes they're not impossible and, and you do it and it works out great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, take the shot. You, you don't know yeah. unless, unless you take the shot and so go for it and uh, see what happens. Well, I think this has been excellent. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, so I spend a lot of time on Twitter, uh, at Suffolk on Twitter. Uh, we also have a website, suffolk.com, um, where, you know, we recently launched our, our merch store. So you can go there and find all sorts of awesome Gloomhaven goodies. Uh, yeah. And we're also on Facebook at Suffolk Games. So awesome. Well, Isaac, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with finishing up Frosthaven, getting it out into the world and everything else you got going on right now. Yeah. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?